for January 20th, 2016. This is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Since this is our first podcast of 2016, and since the year is off to a rocky start already for oil and stock markets and macroeconomics in general, I figured it would be good to take a step back from energy transition and look at the big picture, the context the energy transition is occurring in, because how the global economy behaves will have a great deal of influence on the speed that transition can achieve. And right now, that's not looking too good. And on the subject of macroeconomics, there's no one I'd rather talk to than my old friend and colleague, Gregor McDonald, an independent analyst who publishes the excellent TerraJewel newsletter, which we'll link to in the show notes. Some years ago, Gregor used to do a Sunday night macro show on the StockTwits stock trading social network, and I made a point of not missing it, as he always had some interesting insights to share. So for those of you who also have been missing Gregor's Sunday night macro musings, hopefully this will sate that appetite. Gregor and I have been discussing and debating energy transition for about six years now, and we agree on far more than we disagree on. But it's boring to hear people agree on everything, so in this episode we'll revisit some of our long-running and still unresolved debates, and see if we can't stimulate some thinking about some of the difficult questions. So without any further ado, let's bring Gregor into the conversation. Welcome, Gregor, to the Energy Transition Show. Chris, it's so great to be here, and congratulations on the new Transition Show podcast. It's been wonderful, and of course, Happy New Year 2016. Thank you very much, and same to you. So before we dive into our usual debates, I want to set the context a little bit by discussing oil and the macroeconomic outlook. Oil dropped briefly below $30 this week, an astonishing and supposedly psychologically important number and a 15% decline since the start of the year. EIA, IEA, and OPEC all forecasted in December that global oil demand would rise another 1.2 to 1.4 million barrels a day this year, on top of the roughly 96 million barrels a day the world currently consumes. And so if supply didn't grow, and it seems like it may not, since EIA is projecting that the decrease in non-OPEC and the increase in OPEC supply will basically cancel each other out this year, then that would probably be enough to rebalance the oil market, which is thought to be oversupplied by a little more than a million barrels a day. But I am very skeptical of that number. China has been the main driver of global demand growth for many years. It was China's weakening demand growth that kicked off the oil price decline in the summer of 2014. And we are still in the position where nobody has trustworthy numbers on China's economic activity, but we all know that it's slowing, as evidenced by the weak demand, oversupply, and falling prices of all commodities across the globe. So, I think it's important to see oil's price crash in this context, which looks to me like a broad deflationary environment that has driven down the prices of all commodities to levels that we haven't seen in over a decade. I mean, normally that kind of pricing would only happen in a deep recession or depression. So when prices fell to 2009 territory last July, 
I was tweeting up a storm about how I would likely see stock markets fall again to close the gap with commodities, and that now seems to be finally happening. U.S. stock markets have gotten off to their worst start to a year ever. The S&P is down 7.5% on the year already. The Shanghai index is down 17% already this year. And although the Fed decided to raise its interest rate by a token quarter percent a few months ago, mostly I think to try to retain some semblance of credibility, everything still looks very, very weak out there. And finally, I will note that unlike some observers who never got off their deflationary soapbox, even during the post-2008 recovery, I only came back to that point of view about 18 months ago. And that's, in fact, when I started warning about a crash in the very week that U.S. stock markets peaked. So, with my sincere apologies, my friend, for that long preamble, <laughs> what's your take on the global macro picture at this point and the outlook for the year? Well, I'm, I'm kind of glad we're starting off with oil, and I know that our conversation will interweave through all the various energy resources and especially renewables. In my most recent issue of Terrajewel.us, I wrote that it's really unfortunate that the global oil supply complex increased supply so significantly in 2015. Now, when I say significantly, you know, something like 2.3%. But there was, as you said in your introduction, there was actually a fairly strong signal in 2014 on the demand side. Demand rose maybe 0.75% in 2014. And we really didn't get the supply response that the market needed. As you also pointed out, it looks like we're, we're actually going to finally get the kind of supply response that the market really needed last year. looks like we're going to get something like that this year. Yeah. Although to have the supply response in 2016 that you needed in 2015, if just as you said, it sounds like you and I have roughly the same forecast, uh, non-OPEC declines might get canceled out by OPEC supply. And so maybe we're heading into a year where global supply is flat. But unfortunately, the market may need a bigger supply response than that. Now, uh, of course, oil it remains a pretty good barometer of the global economy. But we'll get into this somewhat. As you know, oil's role in the global economy has come down by a fairly solid amount since the year 2000. Well, I, I do want to get into that, but not just yet. Yeah. Just for now, I want to talk about yeah. an oversupply of oil, a glut of oil that has, yes, materialized from both supply and demand factors, but I think the demand side of that has really been underappreciated. And we can have, and we will have likely, some supply destruction for the high-cost oil Tight oil in the U.S., Canadian oil sands, deep water, that sort of thing this year. But it's really the weakening demand in China that I think needs to focus our attention this year. And I do feel that we are struggling against a deflationary undertow. And I do see oil as a signal for that. And I, I just wonder if you would agree on that point. I do. I guess from a more broad standpoint, the global energy complex seems to be possibly suffering kind of an oversupply shock across the board. I mean, coal has been in the penalty box for a couple of years now. There's a really interesting market in which you've got this very high level of dependency, but you've got no growth. And one idea that might be helpful here that I kind of like is just this idea that commodity markets are not only sensitive at the margin, they're just sort of tragically sensitive at the margin. And when demand for commodity markets begins to tail off and flatten, even for short periods of time, it really shows up in price quite strongly. And I, you know, having watched oil for so many years, I'm always hesitant to make any big pronouncements, say, about the move in oil over the past four weeks. But the move in oil over the past 18 months is what really is concerning. And I, I agree with you that the world has possibly been fighting deflationary impulses for a number of years, maybe even since the year 2000. Mm. And I think China's growth has really masked that. Yes. China's growth was this wonderful gift to not only developed countries, but especially the non-OECD countries 
who were commodity producers. That industrial revolution in China dumped capital into the hands of so many citizens and an emerging middle class in many commodity producing nations from South America to Southeast Asia. And of course, the commodity countries like Canada and Australia, where you had the signal of housing booms in places like Sydney and Calgary. And of course, Sydney and Calgary housing markets are cracking now. Yes. In fact, I read an article this week about you can get nice, high quality downtown office space in Calgary right now for zero dollars a square foot. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. I mean, I'm sure the people haven't left just yet. But as you're probably aware, these low oil prices, as damaging as they are to the U.S. independent oil and gas industry, they're even potentially more damaging to the the tar sands industry. But again, back out to this deflationary notion, you know, at an investor conference in San Diego, this autumn Stocktoberfest, which is put on by Howard Linson. Of Stocktwits fan. Yeah, there was a good conversation about the oil sector's role in the economy. And, you know, a number of us sort of looked at the more benign take, which was that a decline in the price of oil would simply be a happy transfer of capital from the oil and gas companies to consumers. A number of us who've watched the return of the oil and gas sector post-2009, very capital-intensive, very investment-heavy, very heavy equipment-oriented, we watched the industrial cities of the Midwest, you know, the Akrons and the Milwaukee's and the Cleveland's and so forth. They really thrived on the return of oil prices after the Great Recession. And so this oil price environment is clearly not merely a happy transfer of capital from the oil and gas companies. Okay, so we definitely agree on all that then, that we are in fact looking at a deflationary signal in, in what's been happening in oil. And I think we would agree that that's also the signal that we're getting from equity markets. Yes, and I, I'm cautious about making any prognostications about how nasty the current winds will take global equity markets this time around. We are still in an ultra-low interest rate environment. Stocks still provide a better prospect for return over the long term. But, you know, there's some voices out there saying that the bond market could actually go through another big rally cycle, driving interest rates even lower around the world. And that's certainly a possibility. Okay. So basically, we just continue down this path until we hit some sort of a bottom. (laughs) Is that the idea there? Right. We keep shrinking and declining. You know, what's really surprised me is the fact that the non-OECD economies haven't really bounced back, you know, over the past few years. I mean, yes, in 2011, 2012, 2013, but they really haven't come back. And of course, there are other things going on in in important non-OECD economies. In China, you have this difficult transition to a consumption-oriented economy. In India, you have a kind of domestic energy revolution that's going on. It's a revolution of domestic supply, and it's a big, big policy push to bring a lot of people onto the power grid who've never been on the power grid. So you've got some things happening in non-OEC nations, the big ones, and it's as though those good things that are happening have not sparked any sort of broader recovery in the non-OECD. And that just personally, that's really surprised me as someone who's been very patient over the past few years waiting for recovery. I'm very surprised that the United States has once again found itself sort of an island of economic growth in a world that's very, very sluggish. And of course, that that asymmetry, that can't last forever. You know, we've gone through that before. <laughs> right. Well, okay. So before we talk about that, I'm really glad that you brought the conversation to this point because it is that broad lack of vigor in the global economy that I think really is something that we ought to be paying attention to. So it seems to me that we just have too much supply of everything, but nobody is willing to cut back on production. Mm -hmm. You probably saw this quote. We're at a recent coal trading conference. Energy venture analyst president Seth Schwartz said, the problem with this industry is nobody will close a goddamn coal mine. 
noting that the owners of Patriot Coal were planning to actually increase production this year, even while coal prices are in the basement. And basically, they're hoping that their competitors over at Walter will close their mines. You know, this is after Arch Coal just became the 49th coal producer to go bankrupt in the U.S. since 2012. And it's the same problem we see everywhere. Most of the world's oil producers, nearly all the producers in the U.S. and Canada, are losing money at these prices. And they're all hoping that the other guy will close down. I mean, this war for market share is hurting all producers. And it's becoming a war of attrition. And, and now we have Saudi Arabia murmuring about putting up some of its assets for sale under an IPO to raise cash while it's burning a $100 billion annual budget deficit every year. And now we're seeing oversupply everywhere in key industrial metals, grains, soft commodities, and so on. And I wonder if it isn't time, however unpopular the notion may be, to dust off that old limits to growth playbook here, Gregor, and start thinking about a future where economies and demand for energy and commodities actually shrinks from year to year. Well, there's a couple things there. You know, an issue that fewer people have paid attention to but that some folks have actually started to pay attention to is what's happening in global fertility rates. And fertility rates come down for different reasons, and not to get into the weeds on that, but we have some fairly notable trend changes over the past 15 years in global fertility rates. And again, I, I don't want to put it all on, on a factor like that. A lot of what's happening right now is that that China Industrial Revolution lifted world GDP, and it created this very awesome call on global natural resources. And we're definitely in the, in the hangover period of that. I mean, you, you mentioned coal. I recently did an issue on coal at terrajewel.us and actually did a, an open post at my website, gregor.us, on, on the, just the very unusual position that the global coal market finds itself. Here we are having supersized coal back to use or consumption levels that the world has never seen before. Coal now provides a quantity of energy to the world that's roughly equal to the quantity of energy that oil provides. And yet the coal market has received, to use a, a financial term, a sudden stop. I mean, there's been a sudden stop in the global coal market. The consumption levels aren't declining on a global basis, but they're clearly no longer advancing. And so into that environment, we've got new natural gas that's being exported from Australia and the United States, and that's probably for the power grid. We've got renewables, which I know we'll talk about. And wow, I mean, the next five years in wind and solar supply are pretty darn impressive as well. I mean, we're, we're getting to an area now where, where wind and solar and I've got some data up that I'll share with you today and some forecasts, you know, wind and solar alone is coming into that marginal part of the global power market in many domains. And it's saying, hey, I'm, I'm here too, and I'm here to help. <laughs> so. Yeah. I recall some years ago, you, you actually thought that coal would continue to grow. Yeah. And I think, I think we've both been impressed by how rapidly renewables have just sort of taken the place of coal in supplying any new load growth. Yes. You know, even just, what, a year ago, we were still hearing about China's building another coal plant every week or whatever. Now we see China's coal consumption actually declining. And I think the only place where there might actually still be a growth market for coal is potentially India. But as we've discussed, that's even looking less likely every month. Renewables there are also just sort of winning the race. India's coal growth of domestic coal production supply sort of offers the worst of both worlds to the climate community and the global coal industry. It means that India is going to burn more coal, but it also means it's not going to import any more coal. And mm. Payush Goyal, who is the India Minister of Energy, teamed up with Prime Minister Narendra Modi, they are very serious about getting those 350 to 400 million people on the power grid. And they're not going to do it exclusively with coal. Absolutely not. But they are very proud, just for example. I mean, Payush Goyal has been tweeting out hurrahs the last couple of months because for the first time in years, there's no shortages of coal at the mining head or on the railways or at the coal burning power stations. So India is definitely going to go through a revolution. And then, of course, if you're a 
creator or an excavator or extractor of energy somewhere else in the world, you're wondering how much India will call on you for your energy supply or your services. And there's a real uncertainty. But you're right, Chris, there's been a sudden stop on a global basis of coal consumption. I did think it would go probably another five to seven years. The big surprise has been China. China, the Beijing leadership is clearly freaked out Mm. by the last few years of air quality. They're still building some new coal-fired plants. It's not actually clear that they'll actually run them. But of course, on the other side of the ledger, on the wind and solar side of the ledger, wow. I mean, the gigawatt capacity additions are just astonishing. Yeah. So I'd like to just return briefly to this concept that I was talking about before, about revisiting the old limits to growth playbook. And I agree that fertility rates do give us some hope on that. And I I recall Jeremy Grantham's piece where he really focused on fertility rates as sort of humanity's last best hope Mm -hmm. for dealing with resource overshoot and climate. In fact, I'll link to that in the show notes because I think some people haven't had a chance to read that. It really was a great essay. But do you see, as I'm suggesting here, this weak demand for commodities sort of across the board as an indication that we just really can't keep expanding the way that we have been? Well, you know, the framing used to be that we couldn't keep growing because energy supply would be geologically or technologically constrained. Right. And then that would be expressed in price. Right. And that the price level would be too much for the workers of the world to afford. I, I know somebody who used to think like that. Yeah, yeah. And of course, some of the backward-looking hindsight criticism of the limits to growth model from the 1970s, if I recall, some of that has been a little cute because there's so much that happened between the 1970s and now. And, And I do think that one of the things that happened that would have been difficult for anyone to model is that, in my view, it's very clear that human beings are both constrained by their environment and resource availability. They also have the ability to shift their behavior if they get hit over the head often enough. And fertility rates are clearly, in my view, a response that has been sort of a long rolling unfolding of fertility rate responses that have occurred. Of course, in the shorter term, well, yeah, F- fertility rates, there's a signal that makes itself evident over what, 10 year, 20 year cycles. We're talking about something that's happened over an 18 month cycle here. So, yeah, in the shorter term, the OECD's consumption of oil was probably at its highest peak. I just did the data the other day, maybe 2003, 2004. But I think of the limits to growth question as a long timeline right. question. Yes. And one that doesn't fit so easily into the shorter view. But I guess maybe I would answer it this way. For the past 10 to 12 years, we've been bumping up against various ceilings and then kind of coming back down again and then bumping up against various ceilings. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. You know, there's been that pattern and it's, it's a little difficult to describe because the ceilings are a little bit different as you go from Mm -hmm. region to region. We kind of bounced off that ceiling of that oil price shock of the last decade. 2008. Yeah. And that created some somewhat moderate new demand patterns for oil, at least in the OECD. Not so much in the non-OECD. The non-OECD was not as price sensitive as they were becoming new users and their user base was expanding. I must admit, Chris, I am confused now about where the non-OECD is in oil adoption. I'm not confused that they've largely industrialized on the back of power and electricity. You know, that China's industrial revolution was manufacturing built on the back of the power grid. But there they were adopting oil as new users of oil. Oil found a new user base in China for a number of years. Look at some of the more recent data on automobile sales. And I wonder what Beijing will do in terms of policy with regards to internal combustion engines. So I don't know what the future prospects are. for yeah. oil. It, it, did oil hit 
the non-OECD as, as well. I'm, I'm actually unclear on that. Well, I think we all are, mainly because the most important signal within the non-OECD is China, and nobody knows what data to believe with them. But let's return to the concept of oil demand in the OECD. So you've been pretty firm in your view that oil consumption in the OECD peaked about 10 years ago and that it won't be growing again. This is one of our sort of long-running debates. And the data does, in fact, show, as you say, that OECD oil demand has not bounced back to, say, 2006 levels yet. But the OECD, I really wonder if that's the right framing because it includes the sick men of Europe, you know, the so-called pigs. And if we just look at the U.S., I mean, Gregor, demand for gasoline and diesel in the U.S. hit a new all-time peak in 2015, new all-time high at 13.1 million barrels a day, the old high being 12.8 in 2007. And so I still have to think that oil and economic growth are still very much coupled and that if the countries of Europe had rebounded as strongly from the 2008 crash as we did, then the entire OECD probably also would have hit a new high in gasoline and distillate demand last year. So I don't think it's a question of decoupling, more as one of being sort of economic health. So that's pretty strong data that there's no growth. That definitely goes to dependency. So, you know, like in global power grids, (laughs) we've done so much to try to start to decarbonize. And it shows you that in the United States, you know, I think U.S. oil consumption is maybe around 9 to 11 percent below the, the highs. And I think the data you just cited was that it'd be about two plus percent growth over what, seven or eight years. So that's sort of not growth, but it really illustrates to me the dependency. I mean, I was looking at some data this week on rail ridership. Mm -hmm. Rail ridership has soared in the United States over the last 10 years. It's up 40% from 2005. And, you know, a lot of the little things that never used to matter, like public transportation, I remember snickering at these small, tiny improvements in the mileage performance of vehicles. Well, you know, over the last 10 years, we've put on what, maybe four or five miles of improvement on vehicles in the United States? Up until 2014. And then now we're doing a little backsliding now. Yeah. Yeah. So let me try to frame this this way. My view is that we're going to get to the year 2020. And we're going to have much better than expected decarbonization progress that will have occurred in global power grids. I think even people who are moderately optimistic will say, wow, the world really accomplished a lot. And then I actually think we're going to have much worse progress than expected in global transportation and this almost rigid, calcified dependency that we have on oil for transportation, despite a lot of the really excited talk about autonomous vehicles, and I've been doing a lot of research on this recently in electric vehicles. As have I. Despite all that excitement, that data that you just cited about the gasoline, really to me, and I've been thinking about growth stories versus dependency stories, really shows that dependency. And there is that portion of the U.S. economy And, you know, I've looked at how the proportion of oil in the U.S. energy mix, of course, has declined like it has elsewhere in the world and natural gas has risen up. But let me say this, Chris, non-OECD oil consumption has, after its peak, it's been traveling along at a bottom, actually, for the last three to four to five years. It's not going up, but it's not going down either. And it sort of reminds me of what I wrote a couple of weeks ago on my blog about coal, you know, people are very excited that there's no longer coal growth. Great. We've got a big new coal mountain. You know, people will get up tomorrow morning and they'll go to work in the coal industry to supply the coal that the world uses. The industry isn't hiring. Okay. But people will get up tomorrow morning and do that job. And, you know, even in the OECD, you wonder if that's where oil is right now? Are we down to those harder to dislodge levels? Yeah. And, you know, speaking of path dependency, I was sort of startled yesterday to come across some quick little tweeted out pile of data from Charles Lane, a writer over there at the Washington Post. He was giving out the percentage of all new U.S. car sales that were electric cars. 
2011, 0.13%, 2012, 0.36%, 2013, 0.63%, 2014, 0.75%, 2015, 0.67%. I mean, for the last five years, we have not even gotten above three quarters of 1% per year in electric car sales. And this last year, 2015, the U.S. sold a record 17.5 million vehicles. And most of those were lower efficiency vehicles. Again, as we were just saying, the total fuel economy sales weighted average per year has actually fell in 2015. So we just deployed a whole lot more new Ford F-150s than we did EVs by a big margin. And that bakes in a certain structural demand for another at least 10 years, right? Or as long as people keep their vehicles. I just feel sad hearing you cite the data. I, well, I think we all do. Of course. I'm, and I think you were as well. I was cautious about the prospects for the rate of EV adoption back in 2010. I'm more positive, actually, about it now. But it's so bracing. As you say, the Ford F-150, I've done a fair amount of traveling in the last year, Boston, New York, San Diego, Seattle, and I see new Ford F-150s everywhere. Oh, it's been the best-selling vehicle in America year after year after year. Yeah. What's really sad to me is that the EV market missed this cycle. I mean, I just remember so well, you come out of the Great Recession, automobile sales have been hammered. Everyone who looks yeah. at this market understands in order to adopt something new, you've got to have fleet turnover. And there we were, ready for fleet turnover. I mean, it was like the stars were aligned. And, and we're selling 10 million vehicles a year, yeah, right? <laughs> yeah. And we finally, when the automobile sales come back, the EV market's not even taking a percentage point. Right. Very depressing. So this brings us, I think, conveniently to probably our longest running debate, Gregor, about the interaction of oil prices and the global economy. So just to try to quickly recap, I have generally held to the peakest point of view in which high oil prices act as a break on the economic activity. And, and I think that's what happened. I think you do at least partially as well in, in the crash in 2008. And I think that's part of what has led to the current slump. Uh, in fact, I'd argue that if we hadn't had this unprecedented central bank interventions and effective zero interest rates in the wake of that crash, the tight oil boom might never happened and the economic recovery that we've had since 2008 probably wouldn't have happened either because oil was just too expensive to fuel economic growth. You, I think, originally shared that point of view and then began to see or, or maintain that oil was losing its importance to the global economy, that it didn't have that kind of correlation, that there was some decoupling now between GDP and oil demand, and that by switching loads to the power grid, the world might still achieve economic growth, even with oil prices holding firm over $100 a barrel, and that world GDP would continue to increase. Fair enough? Mm -hmm. Fair characterization? Okay. Yeah. So let me open with this question. If your position is right, then is it just a coincidence that the global economic growth, ex-China, was anemic throughout the $100 oil era and that it has tapered off since then in most of the world, apart from China and the U.S.? So is that just a coincidence? And why have we essentially had flat demand for grid power in the developed world for most of the past decade if we are, as you've put it, rebounding to the grid? Yeah, good questions. So it's not a coincidence even though oil was nearly 50% of the global energy mix in the 1970s and was still almost 40% of the global energy mix coming into 1999, 2000, as about 39%. Now that oil's share of the global energy mix is down towards 31%, what I really want to say is I just want to moderate the idea of oil being kind of like this reliable toggle that either creates or reflects what's happening in the global economy. Obviously, a 31% share is still very important. And it should be added that the kind of work that's done with oil is unique. Now, you can do certain types of work with oil that you can't do with 
other types of energy. That said, some of the ideas that I was critical of 10 years ago, I'm less critical of now. So for example, the declining oil intensity of global GDP. I was critical of that view in 2005. I'm less critical of that view now. I was critical of that view back then because I more typically saw the global economy in industrial terms and in terms of stuff that got moved around and things that got built. Now, 10 years later, I accept that a larger portion of what happens in the economy tends to be digital goods and information technology. So I've capitulated to the idea that we're going to mark the GDP figure in the Excel column as having grown, even when either all energy consumption is flat or even if oil's share of the global energy mix is in decline. And yes, it, it is worth noting that the growth rate of electricity generation in the world the last 10 years has exceeded the growth rate of oil consumption every year of the last 10 years. There is something notable about that. And part of it is that, you know, the non-OECD, they came to power more heartily than they came to oil. So they skew the data a little bit. That might go a little bit more towards your view. So yes, as that is an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah, as you and I know, it's not an either or situation. I really like evolution as an idea. We can't be talking about the world today the way we were talking about it in 2005. Some of the changes are really dramatic in the way energy is used and traded and the share mix that various energy sources have. Here's one way to look at it. One thing that may have been lost is oil as a reliable indicator of what's happening, except at the tail ends, you know, but in the middle where oil prices are not doing something either extreme on the upside or on the downside, it's harder to get a bead from oil as like the pulse of what's happening. It must have been an easy world to do macro back in 1975 when oil was providing 50% of the energy to the world. Mm, that's an interesting point. You know, it's just harder. Yeah. You know? it's, uh, it's sort of like what we were talking about before. Again, I was surprised when people thought in 2014 that lower oil prices, as you quoted recently, or you mocked the quote actually, unalloyed good for America, clearly... <laughs> Oh, it's alloyed, all right. <laughs> yeah, people hadn't gotten up to speed on the fact that we'd become an oil producer. Right. And so, yeah, we're in a very different world today than we were just 10 years ago. The oil shock was a real shock, and the world has responded to that. And it is branching and growing along the lines of electricity. And just as a platform, you know, I think what's really encouraging from a climate standpoint is that the visibility on how we will start to decarbonize global power grids is really clear. In fact, I wrote another recent post at Gregor.us just saying, it looks to me like OECD emissions have peaked and that peak is looking more secure, if you asked me. Because when you look across the OECD and what plans we have for how we'll use energy over the next five years, I just don't know what kind of net growth opportunities there are for fossil fuels in the OECD. So let's move on to LNG, speaking of fossil fuel growth. And this is sort of another one of our long-running debates. I've been skeptical, as you know, about the future of U.S. LNG exports, mainly because I have not been convinced that shale gas production in the U.S. would hold up at current high levels for the decades that would be needed in order for billions of dollars of investment in LNG export facilities to make sense. Conversely, you've been very bullish on U.S. LNG exports, seeing the U.S. exporting around 9 billion cubic feet per day, I think it was, or around 12% of U.S. gas production by 2020. So now, it seems the market has been intent on making fools of both of us because the prices for LNG have crashed around the globe. <laughs> Even in Asia now, landed LNG prices are under $7 per million BTU. So once you factor in the U.S. Henry Hub gas prices at around $240 right now, plus $5 for liquefaction, shipping, and regasification, 
Shipping LNG to Asia right now is a money-losing proposition. And Chenier, the first company to get an LNG export facility up and running in the U.S., has kicked its visionary CEO to the curb. So now I get the argument that would-be exporters make, that gas prices will rise again, and over the next 20 years or so, they'll be back in the money. But I also look at the new export capacity coming online in Australia and Qatar, and then I think again about the deflationary scenario, and I'm just not at all sure about that. So what's your latest view on U.S. LNG exports? Yeah, good questions. And uh, let me just preface to say that a lot of this talk and conversation will turn on what happens to natural gas prices over the next, certainly the next five years, but really for investors, 10 years, as you and I know, fossil fuel extraction operations tend to look at a 10-year investment timeline. So just to refresh the data, since I do have it in front of me, there are currently seven projects that have been approved, and I mean full approval by the United States government and the various agencies. The seventh just was approved for Christmas. So the six that have been approved and are under construction would amount to 10.6 billion cubic feet per day, which compared to 2015 dry gas production would be about 12 to 13%. And then if you add the seventh project that's just been approved and it's not under construction yet, uh, that would bring us up to 12.82 billion cubic feet per day which compared to 2015 expected production would be 17.3%. The natural gas futures market clearly cares not one whit about the the coming wave of LNG exports from the United States, doesn't care about it, is completely unconcerned. Natural gas futures market's clearly unconcerned on the supply side. However, as you point out, natural gas prices are going to have to rise at some point here for all these projects to make good on their investment. And of course, this is happening in a context in which Australia, okay, Australia has also come on with supply. In fact, if you combined Australia and the United States, the world was looking at an extra 20 billion cubic feet of natural gas in LNG form coming onto the market that it didn't have before the year 2015, 2016, by Mm. the year 2020. And now we're up to 22 Mm. with this recent project. So I don't know what the U.S. natural gas industry is going to do. I know what they need. They need for all this LNG to be taken up steadily over the next five years, presumably by China. I know that China has LNG import infrastructure at the ready. I know that China is starting to consume natural gas from a very low base, but it's not just the global LNG market that they can source natural gas supplies. They can source it by pipelines, which are either under construction or will be under construction across Asia. As for North American supply, yes, I I remain sanguine on future North American supply of natural gas. I think it's actually scary for this industry how much natural gas is being produced and the rate at which the supply has expanded even in this crushing low environment is just insane. Hmm. And so obviously here's another market where somebody's got to go first. Someone's got to shut down a natural gas drill, yeah. you know, right? Well, I mean, the drills are getting shut down, but, yeah. you know, uh, mm-hmm. I think we will see declines in shale gas production this year yeah. along with the tide oil because, yeah. you know, I mean, the, the two are so intimately connected. Uh, I think, uh, what is it, about a third of U.S. gas supply right now is actually coming from tide oil operations as associated gas. So, But just briefly on the supply, I was looking at the supply growth, 65.8 billion cubic feet per day of production in 2012, 74 and a half billion cubic feet of supply a day in 2015. One, two, three years from 65 to 75. Wow. Yeah, that is impressive. In fact, if you just start that at 2013, it was 66 in 2013. So Mm -hmm. it's almost 10 extra billion cubic feet a day in just two years. That's just crazy growth and the price reflects it. And so much of it produced at prices that by any legitimate accounting would lose money for the producer. 
Right. Absolutely. Which is the craziest part of all. I know. So I, I think a big part of, and an underappreciated part of this whole macro picture has been the ongoing strengthening of the U.S. dollar, particularly over the last 18 months while oil prices have been falling. So the concern over the euro was widely reported for the past several years, but since oil prices started crashing, the Russian ruble, the Brazilian real, lots of other currencies have been losing value quickly, including the Chinese yuan and the South African rand. And so, in fact, I happened to catch our friend Paul Kodrowski on uh, Bloomberg Television last night explaining how the recent rush of Chinese money into North American assets, everything from Vancouver real estate to a stake in the smartphone app Grinder, is really about capital flight, which echoes a lot of other stories I've heard recently about capital flight from other countries, particularly those in Asia and those dependent on natural resource experts. So what's your view on the Forex markets right now, and what do you think happens next? Yeah, so the dollar is strong for all the reasons that you mentioned. And from an energy standpoint, looking for the dollar, I'm not making a call on, on where the dollar's price level goes, but the pressure, the upward pressure on the dollar is going to continue because the energy balance sheet of the United States has been undergoing reconstruction. We're, we're still consuming a little bit less energy than we were 10 years ago, but most of this energy, there's been a huge shift in the source of the energy that we're consuming. And, you know, we're producing more oil, we're consuming less oil, we're producing more and consuming more of, of our natural gas. We're exporting natural gas to Mexico. Here come new exports of natural gas to the world. We've been exporting huge quantities of petroleum products. And of course, now here comes the export of crude oil to add to the petroleum yeah. products. And then we've got a wind and solar revolution underway. And that goes under the part of the ledger of homemade energy. So we're taking the net balance of the U.S. dependency on foreign sources of energy when you net the exports and imports. And from a financial standpoint, that's just going to add further pressure to the dollar. So I just continue to think that the dollar has basically done all the tightening that the Fed ever needed to do. And this quarter point that they did recently just really felt like monetary theater. And I would say that what we're going to hear, I think we're going to see the Fed be unable to make the case that they've got to do too many rate rises because that inflation reading is going to be under severe pressure in the first half of 2016. Clearly. And the dollar, the dollar is going to continue doing the Fed's work for them. So so no reversal, of course, on that. No. So if, if the dollar remains strong or, God forbid, even strengthens further from here, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we certainly have, I think, reasonable expectations that certain currencies are going to continue to weaken against the dollar right now. I mean, for example, the Canadian loonie. Yes. That's definitely under pressure. So if this continues to be the case, then that only adds more pressure on oil prices. That only adds more pressure on natural gas exports. That only adds more pressure on pretty much all the things we've been talking about today. That's right. People like to dismiss the fact that U.S. exports are, quote, a small portion of U.S. GDP. But I don't think 9, 10, 11, 12 percent. Yeah, it's not 88 percent. But, you know, you start hammering away at that and you're starting to nip chip away at one of the legs of the stool of U.S. GDP. You know, it's not 25 percent, but, you know, it's 10, 11, 12 percent. So I agree with you. I was talking to an investor in Toronto last week and he was actually looking at the loony and what's happening to the Canadian oil and gas sector. And he was actually wondering if things could get kind of a little out of control up in Canada, if you might have a banking crisis in Canada. Yeah. I mean, I've seen forecasts that it could actually hit an all-time low against the dollar. Yeah. yeah. In fact, the hot conversation over the last 48 hours has been a sudden bike in Canadian food prices at the right. supermarket. Right. That looks very unpleasant. And to think that it was kind of at current levels back in, what was it, 2000 or thereabouts, and then actually got up to parity with the U.S. That's right. dollar. That's right. So really, really big effect there that I think still sort of remains underappreciated. 
it's kind of a tide under the whole dynamic of the macro situation. So maybe now we should move on from the macro stuff at this point and kind of get back to the theme of this show. So you've been doing some work lately to really focus in on energy transition in your TerraJewel newsletter, particularly on the outlook for renewables. So what are your latest thoughts on that? Right. So in 2014, the new generation from wind and solar power provided kind of an astonishing about 40% of all new generation. It provided 117 new uh, terawatt hours out of 350. I guess that's about 30%. Yeah. And in 2015, something similar occurred. In 2016, we're still traveling along about 34%. But again, I, I think what's really important here is that if wind and solar power are able to come in and provide a full third of whatever new power generation from all sources is coming online in the world, that's a real cap on fossil fuel growth. That's clearly part of what's starting to happen in China. Mm -hmm. That's very much what's happening here in the United States. You know, the coal retirements, of course, here in the United States are spectacular, and we're just one country. We're not the world. And of course, some of those retirements are replaced by, in part, by natural gas. But this extension of the investment tax credit and the wind production credit I think the market was going to do well even without those, but it's actually going to smooth the next five years instead of having like a big spike this year of new capacity and then a drop off the following year. Now that the industry can sort of smooth its way and, you know, we've got cost declines that are acting um, as a tailwind. Chris, I've, I've actually started asking myself what feels like kind of a wild and radical question. I've started asking myself how much fossil fuel growth is going to occur on a net basis in the world, just in global power grids? In power grids alone? Yeah, in power grids alone, because you've got wind and solar. And I'm not tracking hydro and nuclear right now yeah. so much. I'm really tracking wind and solar. But you know, just two years ago, my projection was that the world, in a really nice scenario, would wind up with... 500 gigawatts of solar capacity by the year 2020. I mean, I've been progressively raising that. And I'm now at 700 gigawatts of solar capacity globally by 2020. That's a pretty big deal. Yeah, yeah. And so I actually think that folks in the climate community, they don't want to let up the pressure, but I think that they should really start to feel quite encouraged that at the margin, something is really beginning to happen and the visibility on what will happen in global power grids is pretty clear. Again, reaching back to what we talked about before, though, transportation. Solving the problem of cars with cars is sort of my snarky way of saying I'm bullish on EV. And if EV were to take off, if electric vehicles were to take off, that offers a lot of nice opportunities for storage and demand and getting this thing going a little bit faster. But I, I think that we're not moving fast enough in terms of global transportation. There's a real asymmetry opening up now between the great progress in power grids and just not much happening in transport. Yeah. No, I absolutely agree, Gregor. I am very interested in EVs, and I think there really is some potential there. Mm. But right now, I mean, it just remains a potential. It amazes me how many times people say to me, you know, oh, well, this whole decline in oil is ultimately all about vehicles. And I just have to say, no, it isn't. It isn't now. It could be, but we don't know when that'll be. It isn't right now. It has nothing to do with oil right now. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that we have actual economic growth going on to the extent that we have bona fide economic activity. It has to happen with gasoline and diesel. It has to. There just isn't enough rail to really move the needle on that. Mm-hmm. And I continue to believe that long-term passenger traffic, especially replacing airline flights under 500 miles, ought to be done with rail, mm-hmm. even in the United States. But Well, that's a topic for another day. Anyway, Gregor, 
I'm glad to hear that you've been working on the outlook for renewables. I think that's really an interesting target right now for your work. Thank you. Yes, I'm, I'm shocked at what I'm seeing. The cost declines are steady and very encouraging. And the fact that the United States is just alone, the fact that the United States is going to wind up with more solar and wind in 2020 than we thought maybe just six months ago, mm-hmm. that's going to feed into the cost declines that everyone's going to enjoy globally. And and we're just going to replace coal and no one's even going to notice. <laughs> well, you know what? I will keep you updated on the point where we actually see coal capacity globally go into decline. We're not there yet. And unfortunately, the problem of existing coal capacity in the non-OECD is sort of a big thing that we're going to have to grapple with for a while. Well, it is. But I'd also point out that the load factors have been falling. Sure. Sure. Of course. And there's definitely a threshold there. You know, if your load factors get too low... Pretty soon, it just doesn't make sense to even keep the asset around. It doesn't have to go anywhere close to zero before they shut it down. I agree, Chris. And actually, this is you know one of the super themes that I keep taking fresh swipes at in my publication, Terrajewel.us, is this rather large macro idea that the total cost of fossil fuel extraction, fossil fuel transport, fossil fuel combustion and fossil fuel combustion infrastructure, that entire sort of supply and combustion chain is a set of infrastructure that is really quite enormous and costly when compared to the technology of capturing energy and not burning it, but simply capturing it. And I think Mark Jacobson of Stanford, who's done a number of studies on this, He's really helped me understand the difference between combustion and capture. And I don't think that's a a symmetry of cost and ongoing future risk that many really understand, yet they see solar and that it captures diffuse energy. They see these large installations that go up. But what they're not thinking about is, you know, if you stand astride, a half a gigawatt solar plant in the California desert, no pipelines, no caterpillar shovels, no ships ferrying stuff, Mm -hmm. no combustion architecture. No rail lines going in and out. No rail lines. Okay, all that steel is Mm -hmm. just, it's not needed. Mm -hmm. And that those two worlds are so different from each other is something that everyone really needs to think upon. That's my view. I agree. There could be actually a how do I put this, sort of a deceptive price effect when you're moving into this new domain of generating assets that have a high upfront capital cost and then a zero marginal cost. And then you get 10, 15 years down the road with those assets and all of a sudden you find yourself in a totally different world. That's right, Chris. That's exactly it. All of a sudden, it's it's like not having to pay rent anymore, all of a sudden. Exactly. Exactly. Or paying off your house. It's like, oh, wow, I I have another $1,000 a month in my checking account all of a sudden. That's right. The payoff at the back end to solar and renewable energy is, solar in particular, is amazing. Just amazing. Mm. Whereas at the back end of fossil fuels, your costs skyrocket. Or uh, skyrocket and crash and skyrocket and crash. (laughs) (laughs) There we go. And the volatility alone, as we've discussed, is damaging. It just makes your capital planning so difficult. Well, Gregor, thank you so much for your time. I think we've covered plenty of ground today, and we'll definitely have to have you back on the show. Thank you so much, Chris. It was great to have the conversation with you and to go back and forth on these things. As always, my friend, we will continue this conversation. Okay, Chris. Bye-bye. That was independent energy and macro analyst Gregor McDonald, whose TerraJewel newsletter is a must-read for anyone interested in these topics. So get out your wallets, kids, and head over to terrajewel.us and sign up for his newsletter. You won't regret it. I don't know if Gregor and I resolved any of these incredibly thorny questions today. I suppose that if we knew the answers to them, we'd be running big fixed income funds or something. But I hope that our discussion at least elucidated the issues a bit and got your wheels turning about the many factors now at play in the global economy and what the current trends suggest. 
We are at a very, very strange time in the markets right now. Commodities are priced at or below the levels they crashed to after the 2008 meltdown, but stock markets have only begun to turn downward after rising to even headier heights than their 2008 highs. Oil, natural gas, silver, sugar, copper, coffee, lumber, and on and on. They're all down by more than half from their all-time highs. And every stock market index in the world is now trading below its 200-day moving average. A technical indicator, but a scary degree of correlation. At these prices, there ought to be outright panic, not mild discomfort. And it seems absurd to think that the Fed will raise rates again until there is a clear signal that inflation, not deflation, is strong again. I will note that for the first time in years, I now hear pundits on Bloomberg and CNBC worrying openly about deflation, or the silly but apparently hipper term of art, disinflation, and recession. They're not just brushing it off and telling people to buy the dip anymore. I suspect investors are beginning to worry more about the return of capital than return on capital. Now, chatter about the markets on broadcast TV doesn't tell you much, but it does suggest that this is more than a little turbulence or a short correction in a continuing growth trend, and that the six-year bull market has come to an end. So now we must ask what all this means for energy transition. Happily, the deployment of renewable generators, efficiency advances in the built environment, and sales of EVs don't seem to have been much affected yet. Those trends all seem to be marching to their own drummer. Many observers have said that they expected cheap oil and natural gas to hurt the growth of renewables, but it looks to me like whatever damage they did was muted. Renewables are still a strong growth market, unlike all the rest of the energy sector. It is true that cheap gasoline has stopped the advance of fuel efficiency for vehicles in the U.S. on a sales-weighted basis. But if vehicle electrification can finally begin to get moving at scale and get above the 1% market share mark, then perhaps the fuel economy of internal combustion vehicles will finally begin to matter less. The first 1% is always the hardest, and I think there's a good chance that EVs will break that level in 2017. The real risk to energy transition now is that global economies just begin to shrink rapidly enough to starve everything of investment, not just commodities, and that the growth of renewables and EVs slows down along with everything else. And so it is important that we continue to monitor the economic data, such as it is out of China, and consumer data in the OECD, and be sure that energy transition is proceeding as efficiently as possible. And now a quick look at some recent news items. We've been off since early December, and the news flow since then has been insane, but here are just a few selected items. Item 1. If you listened to the last show on grid power storage, you'll recall our discussion about how current grid market rules don't fully value storage, and in some cases even favor conventional generation over storage, particularly for applications like fast ramping supply. I'd like to quickly follow up on that point by mentioning that FERC issued a proposed rulemaking in September that would partially correct the situation and that a comment process now underway may yield solutions. I have added a few relevant pieces on that subject to the show notes for Episode 8. Item 2. According to Wood McKenzie, the oil consultancy, oil companies have scrapped $380 billion of investment in 68 major projects since the oil market downturn began a year and a half ago. That's roughly double the amount they reported just back in July. Around $170 billion of the scrub projects had been scheduled to come into production from 2016 to 2020, and represents almost 3 million barrels a day of production that won't materialize for another decade, if ever. Put another way, there's 27 billion barrels of future oil production, almost the equivalent of one year of total world production, which is 32 billion barrels, that just went poof. I won't belabor the subject of oil and gas today because we've already covered a lot of it in previous episodes, particularly episodes 5 and 6 and our discussion with Gregor today. 
But it does seem likely that the fall in U.S. oil and gas production that everyone expected to happen throughout 2015, but that only materialized in a modest way, will finally happen in earnest this year as producers' hedges expire, drilling continues to taper off, financing dries up, and all the other tricks that the industry used to survive begin to be played out. Back in 2011, I estimated that the global all-time peak in oil production would probably happen in late 2014 or early 2015, and now it seems likely that 2015 will, in fact, have been the long-awaited arrival of peak oil, unless something miraculous happens to restore demand, prices, and production. But more importantly, CapEx cuts of this magnitude will only set up the next price spike when the world works through the current glut, and it could be a monster spike indeed. That is, unless the kind of economic contraction we discussed in this episode really is a signal that we're falling into the deflationary vortex, in which case oil prices will be the least of our problems. Item 3. The COP21 climate conference happened, and not surprisingly, views were mixed on what it all means. I'm inclined to see it the way that Jeremy Leggett did. As he wrote in his blog after the summit, which I'll link to in the show notes, quote, it will tell energy incumbents that the fossil fuel era is over, that they are now in an era of transition, of rapid managed retreat, whether they like it or not. And by the way, Jeremy's serial book, The Winning of the Carbon War, which we featured in episode five, is now complete and free to download from his site. It's a great read and I highly recommend it. Item four. Just before Christmas, the Nevada Public Utilities Commission voted to change the tariffs for its net metered solar customers. The new tariffs basically make it uneconomical for homeowners and businesses to put up rooftop solar anymore, essentially killing what had been one of the most successful rooftop solar markets in the country. But more importantly, it set a dangerous precedent in that it didn't grandfather in customers who bought their solar systems with the expectation of making a decent return on that investment under the old tariffs. Some of those customers have now filed what amounts to a breach of contract lawsuit. I wrote a short piece about this with some of my colleagues at RMI, which I'll link to in the show notes. But for casual observers, the takeaway message here is this. The fight over fixed charges and net metering is still underway, and the Nevada example will set an important precedent, no matter how it is resolved. It could either indicate that utilities cannot successfully fight solar with tariffs and fixed charges, or it could lead the way to grid defection by customers who have solar. So keep a close eye on that one, solar watchers. Item 5. On December 18th, the U.S. oil industry finally got a long-standing wish granted when the 40-year-old ban on exports of unprocessed U.S. crude oil was lifted, in a deal that also extended the expiring tax credits for wind and solar. As I wrote in a short piece with a colleague, which I'll link to in the show notes, this was actually a much better deal for the wind and solar industries than it was for the oil industry, because it avoided another damaging bust cycle for the former and really didn't give anything to the latter. And that's because the price differential between the U.S. benchmark WTI and the European benchmark Brent had narrowed so far that there really wasn't much of an economic incentive to ship crude overseas anymore. And voila. Since the ban was repealed, Houston grades of crude have actually been selling at a premium to Brent. One cargo of oil has shipped off for foreign shores, but we're not going to be seeing a significant increase in oil exports as long as foreign crude is cheaper than U.S. crude. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XC Network.